whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whatever happens is kind of all-embracing. It just about covers everything. And uh, we all know that all kinds of things can happen. The big question is, what do we do with these things? And the injunction of this particular scripture is, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That doesn't tell us, of course, what that looks like. And so we've been looking into Philippians to see if we can answer the question, what does it look like to behave in a manner worthy of the gospel, whatever happens? And I think we've found some answers. At least I personally found some challenging things, none of which is as challenging as the thing we're going to look into today found in Philippians chapter 4. And the conclusion in answer to the question, well, how do you conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel, whatever happens, the conclusion we'll come to today is we conduct ourselves in a manner that shows we know how to be content. We know how to be content. So let me read to you from Philippians chapter 4, commencing with the 10th verse. Paul says to the Philippians, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secrets of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I am looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is really a letter written from a missionary to his supporting church. You remember that the Apostle Paul had visited Philippi and had actually planted a church there. And he was not there very long before he was run out of town and in very dangerous and difficult circumstances. He went to other regions of Macedonia, but wherever he went, those who were hostile to him chased him. And he was literally on the run from one place to another. Eventually, he went to Thessalonica and spent some time there. We're really not sure how long he was there. But Paul does say that while he was there, the Philippian church repeatedly sent him financial and other means of support. And he was very, very grateful to them for this. And so he is expressing appreciation to a supporting church for the way that they have cared for him while he's been engaging in his missionary activity. There's interesting insights here into how a missionary can write back to a supporting church. 
However, there's something that's really quite fascinating about this passage. For Paul has two things in mind. He wants to express appreciation to the Philippian church for the way that they have been encouraging him and supporting him. But, and it's a very big but, he wants to make it very clear to them that whilst he deeply appreciates what they're doing, they must not think for a moment that he is thinking of them as being that upon which he depends. He wants to give them a teaching in this passage to show them that it is possible, even when things are going well, uh, to, to find a degree of contentment, to find a degree of sufficiency, to find a degree of adequacy that is not dependent on other people. And so he's walking a very narrow tightrope here. On the one hand, he wants to express appreciation to the Philippians for being supportive of him. But on the other hand, he wants to teach them that he's not dependent upon them. Now, how can he tell them gently that he's not dependent upon them and yet at the same time not give them the impression that he isn't grateful? That's the challenge of this particular passage of Scripture. And it's a challenge for us as we try to understand what he is saying. Why is he going to all this trouble? Why is he making such a point of saying, look, I'm not asking for a gift. Why is he saying that I have learned in whatever state I am to be content? Why is he going to such a great length here? And the answer is that he wants the Philippian Christians to realize that it is possible for a Christian in all kinds of circumstances to have a measure of sufficiency and adequacy and contentment that is not dependent on other people. Now that's a challenge. And it's a powerful thing. For the Apostle Paul is actually saying, look, there have been times when I was hungry and I didn't know where my next meal was coming from. On the other hand, there have been times when I've lived in relative abundance. There have been times when things were going extremely well for me. And quite frankly, there were times when things were going very, very badly for me indeed. In fact, even as he writes, you remember, he is in prison. And he will eventually be executed while he's in that prison. And yet he said, whatever the circumstances, I have learned to be content. And I want to get this across to you Philippians so that you will really grasp the significance of this. What it means, whatever happens, to be content. Well, you'll notice that he says, I have learned to be content. And then he repeats himself a few minutes later. And he says, I have learned the secret of being content at all times. I would suggest to you that this is a lesson that's hard for us to learn in the affluent West. We are constantly bombarded by advertising that is playing on our fears, that plays on our greed, that is all the time confusing us so that we don't know the difference between a need and a want. We are being told constantly that we owe certain things to ourselves. And we have been promised that if we will buy certain products that are bigger and better, then we will become popular, we will become successful, we will be appreciated, and we live in this constant atmosphere 
Now, granted that the whole of the free market system requires that people be selling stuff all the time. And if people are going to be selling stuff all the time, it's because people are buying stuff all the time. And if the system is dependent on people buying stuff all the time, well, they've got to be generating the, the desire to buy all the time. And the big question is, where in the world is contentment in all this? And do we understand what it is? And are we even remotely interested in being content? Or are we caught up, as the Apostle Paul said on one occasion, in a continual lust for more? A continual lust for more. Well, this is the challenge of this passage. Now, remember, the whole point is this. Whatever happens, Paul says, learn to be content. Whatever happens. And this is one of the ways in which we demonstrate a lifestyle that is commensurate with the Christian gospel. Well, the first thing that we need to ask then is how do we learn the secret of contentment? That's what Paul says. I have learned to be content. I have learned the secret of contentment. It's encouraging, incidentally, to notice that he had to learn it too. It does not come naturally. Neither does it come easily. But he learned the secret. I would suggest to you the first way in which we learn the secret of contentment is by being clear in our own mind as to what contentment is. The word that Paul uses here, the Greek word, is archeo, and another one, archetos. This word is used in two slightly different ways in Scripture. For instance, in Matthew chapter 25, verse 9, we have the account of a parable that Jesus told. In this parable, he's trying to explain that Christ will come again and we've got to be ready. And he uses the picture of an Eastern wedding where the bridegroom would come and the bridesmaids were expected to be waiting for him to lead him in procession. And they would carry little lamps lit by oil. On this particular parable, there were 10 bridesmaids. Five of them were prepared and five of them weren't. When the bridegroom arrived, they were embarrassed because five had lights that were burning and five had, didn't have any oil in. And so they went to the others and said, share your oil with us. And they said, we don't have enough. And there's the word. We don't have enough to go around. Now that is the root from which the word contentment comes. It's having enough. Another example, Jesus is suddenly confronted with 5,000 families who are very hungry and have no food. So he tells the disciples, you feed them. Philip does some quick calculations, says eight months wages wouldn't even buy enough to feed all these people. Now, the secondary use of this word akeo or aketos is this, the contentment that comes from being satisfied with enough. In other words, deciding when enough is enough and being satisfied. That's what contentment is. Now the big question is, well, when is enough enough? <laughs> and you're probably going to get all kinds of different answers to that question. Let me give you three answers to the question, when is enough enough from Scripture? For instance, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8 now, fasten your seatbelts because it's going to be a shock. There's going to be some turbulent air as I read this to you. This is what it says. 
If we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. How about that one? If we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Here's another one. John the Baptist has been preaching to the people about repentance and being baptized in preparation for coming Messiah and the establishing of his kingdom. And then he explains to them how they should live if they're members of the kingdom. And in answer to this question of some soldiers there, how should we live as if we're members of the kingdom? He says to them, be content with your wages. Stunned silence. Be content with your wages. Here's another one. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Is what it says. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Now, there, there are some little examples of what Paul is talking about when he talks about being content. He is talking about a sense of recognizing what is enough for us to live well and being satisfied with enough being enough. Well, it's not easy. No one's pretending for a moment that it is, particularly living in the culture of which we're a part. There are some very definite enemies of contentment. Let me read to you from the ancient book of Proverbs, chapter 30. Very, very interesting statements here. Verse 15, Proverbs 30. The leech has two daughters. Give, give, they cry. There are three things that are never satisfied, four that never say enough. The grave, the barren womb, land which is never satisfied with water, and fire which never says enough. Now that's pretty striking stuff. There are things that are never satisfied that will leech on you. This dissatisfaction, this discontent, this always wanting more, this always looking for something different is like a leech on your soul. Now, if you've been in the jungles and in the swamps, you probably know what it is to find a leech become very attached to you. But a leech being very attached to you is not very nice, particularly if this leech, as in Proverbs 30, has twin identical daughters. And they're all the time saying, give, 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 give. And they are lynching onto you and they're sucking the life out of you and they're draining the satisfaction from you and you find yourself anemic as far as contentment is concerned. That's the picture. Now the Apostle Paul in Mark Contrast said, in all kinds of circumstances, I have learned to be content. And Proverbs says that's not where a lot of people are living. Because discontent and dissatisfaction is draining the life out of their souls. 
Very graphically, it goes on to say three things that are never satisfied, four that never say enough. Incidentally, this does not mean that the writer couldn't make his mind up whether there were three or four. It's a Hebraic way of saying this is not an exhaustive list. There are lots of other analogies of discontent and dissatisfaction, like the grave. The grave. You've probably noticed that cemeteries never, never get smaller. They're always growing. Can can we say very gently that there are few things that leave a person feeling emptier than infertility and the longing and the desire for a child that they're not able to have. The sense of unfulfillment that never, never goes away. Land which is never satisfied with water. I remember going out years ago to the northern deserts of Kenya, right up on the Ethiopian border. We had some of our people out there, and they'd told the local nomads that their pastor was coming. They didn't know what a pastor was. They tried to figure out what it was, and in the end, the local people said, do you mean your holy man is coming? (laughs) Well, our people from Elmbrook tried hard not to laugh when they thought of me as their holy man, and they said, yes, yes, the, the holy man is coming. And the first question they asked was, does he have a white beard? And they said, as a matter of fact, he does. And they said, then he'll be welcome. And so when the little aircraft landed out in the deserts up there, um, I climbed out. I was surprised at the welcome I got. The holy man had arrived. And I, I didn't know that was what I was. The day after I got there, it rained for the first time in two years. The holy man had come. Now, I don't know why you're laughing. You should be saying, amen, hallelujah. But that's the kind of treatment I get here. So the holy man's come. But you know what I noticed? I noticed that the land was so dry and so parched and so cracked and great fissures in it wherever. And the rain came down out of the sky and just disappeared just disappeared. You could hear it draining down into the soil and in a matter of minutes, it looked as if it had never been there. Never enough. You get into the forest fires and you see these fires, they come relentlessly at you and they consume everything before them. Just nothing is safe from them because they're never, ever satisfied. Here's the picture that so often is leeching away at our souls. Is it true in our own communities? I think so. John Paul Getty at the time, the richest man in the world, was asked on one occasion, how much is enough? And his answer was, just a little bit more than you've got at any one time. And that's the richest man in the world. A friend of mine was coach uh, for the New York Yankees. He told me about when the Yankees signed Reggie Jackson, that the highest paid player on the payroll at that time came storming into the coach's office and said, I don't know how much you are playing that expletive deleted, but I want one dollar more. He got more millions per year than he could spend in a lifetime. But he wanted one dollar 
more. The opening lines of Shakespeare's great play, Richard III. Now is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by this son of York. Now don't worry about the son of York, who he is. Look at that expression. Now is the winter of our discontent. The winter of our discontent. Never having enough. Never saying enough is enough and being satisfied with it because you've learned the secret of contentment. There's the problem. Well, if we've got to learn the secret of contentment, then let's assume that if it is a secret in the biblical sense, it is something that God has revealed to us because that's what a biblical secret is. It is not something that is hidden. It is something formally hidden that has been revealed. Paul says, I have learned the secret of contentment. If you're going to learn the secret of contentment, then I suppose you've got to be clear as to what the secret is. Let's look at it. The Apostle Paul says, the secret of inner contentment that I enjoy is unrelated to circumstances. That's the first thing. The secret of contentment that I enjoy is unrelated to circumstances. He's quite specific. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have known what it is to be living in plenty or in want. I know what it is to be well-fed or hungry. It is independent of those things. The question then is, well, what is it, Paul, that you have grabbed onto that I haven't yet figured out? Because as far as I'm concerned, when I am dissatisfied, when I don't have enough of anything, I leave no stone unturned until I've got more of what I don't have enough of. And I'm assuming if I can get more of what I don't have enough of, then I'll be satisfied. Paul says, no, that isn't how it works. How it works is this. I have learned the secret is not related to my circumstances and is not related to externals. Now, there's a very, very important point here. He uses a slightly different word at this point than he used a little early on. I don't want to get technical here. The second word that he uses was a very common word in philosophical debate at the time that Paul was alive and ministering. And he borrows this philosophical term. It was a term used by the Greek philosophers called the Stoics. Now we talk about people being Stoic today. What we usually mean is, well, they don't say much and they, they just get on with it and they just grit their teeth and they, they, they manage somehow or other. They're Stoics, we call them. The, the, the Greek idea of, of Stoic philosophy was this. Human beings have it in themselves to be self-sufficient. Because they have it in themselves to be self-sufficient, at all times they will demonstrate self-sufficiency, adequacy, and accordingly contentment. So whatever is going on, these guys are always self-sufficient and content. Paul borrows their word, but he does not share their philosophy. His point, however, is this. Dear, dear Philippians, 
I am so grateful for the way that you cared for me and been assisting me, but my sufficiency is not outside me. My sufficiency is inside me. My contentment is not determined by what is going on around me. My contentment is related to what is happening within me. So he uses the philosophical word that gives it a slightly different slant. He is not talking about self-sufficiency. He is talking about inner Christ-sufficiency. Inner Christ-sufficiency. So notice what he says quite specifically. I rejoice again in the Lord. There's his favorite expression. I rejoice again in the Lord that your care for me has blossomed and flourished like a tree in springtime. That's basically the way he puts it. Now notice he rejoices in the Lord. So when Paul is hungry, he doesn't just say, I'm hungry. He says, gee, I'm hungry in the Lord. And when he has an abundance, he just doesn't say, gee, this is great, I've got abundance. He says, I've got abundance in the Lord. And when he's in need, he says, I'm in need, but I'm in need in the Lord. And when he says, I have all that I want, he says, I've got all that I want, but it's in the Lord. Then he goes and makes it even clearer, and he says this, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, we often have a tendency, a rather dangerous tendency, to lift that verse totally out of its context and apply it in situations that Paul never intended it to be applied to. When Paul says, I can do everything through him who gives me strength, he is not saying, hey, I'm Superman and I can leap off tall buildings or I can swim wide oceans, or I can fly. Of course he isn't saying that. The everything that he's talking about is in the context of what he is talking about. And the context is this. In all kinds of circumstances, I have discovered an inner sufficiency in that I'm living in the Lord and the Lord is living in me. And he gives the Lord a new title. This is the title in the, in the original language that he gives. He talks about the Lord as being the one who continually infuses power into me. Now, sometimes in our prayer times, we say to people, call out your favorite name for the Lord. Oh, uh, he is the truth. He is the vine. He is the good shepherd. He is Jehovah. He is Jehovah's Kenya. We get all these different names. Here's a new one for you. This is a title that Paul gives the Lord. The one who infuses power into me. That's the way he phrased it. So he says, I can do all that is necessary to live sufficient and adequate and content in all circumstances for one reason and one reason only. Because of the relationship I have with the one who indwells me, who infuses power into me. There's the secret. I have learned the secret. In all these circumstances, how to be sufficient, adequate, to have enough to do all that I need to do, and to be content. And the secret is 
the one who continually infuses power into me. Think of this for a minute. This is the kind of contentment he's talking about. What I'm going to say now will probably generate some letters from cat lovers. So be it. Cats are the laziest things. <laughs> they pick the warmest place in the room. They take over the most comfortable piece of real estate in the house. They do it with such a supercilious, arrogant air. And if you dare to come near them, they look at you with utter, undisguised scorn. Am I right? I'm not asking cat lovers, I'm just asking the rest of the human race. <laughs> and when, oh, when on a cold night and the, the, the snow is coming down and, and the wind chill is 50 below zero, where are they? They are stretched languidly in front of the fire. <laughs> Content. Just content. Now let me assure you that is not Paul's contentment. <laughs> Paul is not a big old pussycat finding the warmest place in the house looking superciliously at lesser mortals and saying, I am all right. Everything's fine with me. I, I use that analogy. I think it may be helpful, but it probably is going to cause more trouble than it was worth. But... <laughs> The point is this, Paul isn't just thinking of languid, self-sufficient, stretching, taking it easy because I'm living on easy streets and I'm perfectly content. What he is saying is this, I have discovered the secret in all kinds of circumstances of having inner resources through Christ who infuses power into me so that all times. There's this sense of enough is enough. And I'll be content. I don't know about you. I find that an incredibly challenging concept that is fundamentally contrary to the conventional wisdom of our day. Paul is laying it on us in no uncertain terms. Now, you'll notice that that's the first point. Actually, I've left some of that out. It's not all the first point. But I do have two more. And I want to slightly change it now. Because you'll remember that at the beginning of this talk, I pointed out to you that this is really a letter from a missionary to his supporting church. And you remember that he's walking a tightrope. He wants to express appreciation, but he doesn't want them to miss the point that our sufficiency is in the Lord within us rather than a dependency upon other people. Now, this is something important because he then talks very warmly to the Philippians about the way that they have supported him. I want you to notice something that I believe is really quite fascinating. It is this, that people who are not content, rarely 
share. I'll give you that again. People who are not content rarely share. You know why? Because they never have enough. If you never have enough, why in the world would you give anything to somebody else? So reverse that. One of the evidences of contentment is a desire to share. So you see a need and you recognize it as an opportunity and something wells up inside you that says, I want to do something about that. But you see, if you're not content, you're saying, well, there's a need out there, but there's bigger needs in our house. Well, I fully recognize that they've got problems, but I've got my problems. And if I'm all the time thinking in terms of I don't have what I want and I don't have what I need and I don't have enough, why in the world would I be interested remotely in the rest of the world? So in a reverse sort of way, one of the evidences of contentment is a sharing attitude. And that's what Paul is commending the Philippians for. Now remember, when he talks about abundance, (laughs) he is not talking about our kind of abundance. The kind of abundance that we regard as normative was totally unthought of by Paul and his contemporaries. When he is talking about having enough, it would probably be barely above the poverty line by our standards today. So we need to make that adjustment. These are relative terms that he's talking about. The point, however, is this, that these Philippians and the Christians in Macedonia, they had a sense of a desire. In fact, in another place, he talks about them insisting on sharing and doing it out of their rock-bottom poverty. Now, how in the world would people in rock-bottom poverty insist in sharing to meet other people's needs? How in the world would they do that if they hadn't discovered that even in their situations, there was a degree of contentment and they wanted to share? The Apostle Paul even goes further than this. And he said, look, this way you've supported me, it is absolutely a fragrant offering. It's an acceptable sacrifice. It is pleasing to God. Three expressions he uses to describe it. Listen, when we reach out from a sense of contentment and gratitude for all that we have in Christ, and we see a need, and we grasp an opportunity, we've got to elevate it. We're not just giving some money to a program. What we're actually doing, listen carefully, we are making a fragrant offering. We're making an acceptable sacrifice. We are doing something that pleases the Lord. Or if you like, it makes God's heart smile. Who wouldn't want to be part of that? Who would want to be caught up with this leeching 
sense of discontent and dissatisfaction. Who wouldn't much rather say, I want to be caught up in the richest of resources that I have in Christ in being part of all that he's about. And in being part of all that he's about, recognizing that what I'm doing is to him a fragrant offering. It is an acceptable sacrifice. It is deeply pleasing to him. It makes his heart smile. Oh, and by the way, he said, listen, Paul says, listen, I'm not writing asking you to send me another gift. That's not what I'm after. He said, I'll tell you what I'm after. I want something to go to the credit of your account. Think of that. I want something to go to the credit of your account. So Philippians are champing at the bit. They say, Paul, you keep telling us you don't want us to support us, but you've got to let us do it. You keep saying you don't need it. Well, maybe you don't need it, but we need to give. Maybe you're trying to impress upon us that you are self-sufficient in the Lord, but you've got to understand that so are we, and we need to have an opportunity to express it. So let us go on supporting you, please. And he says, all right. All right. But remember, I'm not dependent on you. We know you're not dependent on us, Paul. We understand all this contentment, but you've got to let us show that we're content too. The way that we do that is by supporting you and encouraging you with a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, that which pleases the Lord. And he says, and don't forget, it'll be credited to your eternal account. And they say, oh, we're not particularly interested in that. We just want to show we're content. May the grace of our Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all this day and henceforth. Amen.